three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen. 94.1 KPA. everybody welcome to another edition of hard knock radio david d hanging out with you this afternoon on today's show we're going to talk about some of the top issues of the day we want to make sure you keep it locked do not turn the dial all that and more coming up after the afternoon headlines I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. Accusers of convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein say his death should scrap the non-prosecution agreement he negotiated with Florida federal prosecutors over a decade ago. The court filing today came in a long-running lawsuit against the U.S. government by women who claimed they were not consulted about the 2008 plea deal as required by the Federal Crime Victims' Rights Act. That agreement also gave immunity to potential co-conspirators of Epstein. The accuser's lawyers say that should be thrown out now that Epstein is dead. Epstein died Saturday in what prison officials said was an apparent suicide. He was awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges. Meanwhile, French authorities are reportedly looking into possible sex abuse cases in Paris that are also linked to Epstein. The Trump administration announced a rule today that could limit legal immigration by making it hard for people on public assistance to get a green card. The rule means many green card and visa applicants could be turned down if they use benefits such as food stamps and housing vouchers. Acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Ken Cuccinelli said at the White House today that the new rules will favor self-sufficiency. Through the public charge rule, President Trump's administration is reinforcing the ideals of self-sufficiency and personal responsibility, ensuring that immigrants are able to support themselves and become successful here in America. Critics say millions of people could be affected by the regulation, including immigrants raising U.S.-born children. Immigrant, ad- immigrant advocates say the rule would discriminate against those from poorer countries. The Trump administration today announced that it would change the way the Endangered Species Act is applied. Opponents say the move significantly weakens the nation's bedrock conservation law, making it harder to protect wildlife from the multiple threats posed by climate change. The new rules would make it easier to remove a species from the endangered list and weaken protections for threatened species, the classification one step below endangered. And for the first time, regulators would be allowed to conduct economic assessments. That could mean, for instance, estimating lost revenue from a prohibition on logging in a critical habitat when deciding whether a species warrants protection. 
Critically, the changes would also make it more difficult for regulators to factor in the effects of climate change on wildlife, making those decisions because those threats tend to be decades away and not immediate. Overall, the revised rules appear very likely to clear the way for new mining, oil and gas drilling, and development in areas where protected species live. As part of a settlement of a federal civil rights investigation, Michigan State University has agreed to better protect patients from sexual assault. That includes following a chaperone requirement for sensitive medical exams. The new procedures come in the wake of sports Dr. Larry Nasser's abuse of young gymnasts and other athletes under the guise of medical treatment. Federal authorities say the three-year agreement announced today is the first one struck under a section of the Affordable Care Act that prohibits discrimination in certain health care programs or activities. The deal covers not only students under Title IX, but also patients who are not students. University officials came in for harsh criticism for failing to act against Nasser as complaints against him piled up. The new head of the Federal Aviation Administration reassured the American flying public that the Boeing 737 MAX jets will not return to the skies until he is 100% certain it can safely fly again. The Boeing 737 MAX planes have remained grounded by aviation officials since mid-March as the company copes with the fallout of two fatal crashes that killed 346 people. Lion Air Flight 610 crashed last October shortly after takeoff in Indonesia. Investigators noted a malfunction in the MAX 8 jet's flight control system, known as the MCAS. That say, they say that caused the plane's nose to be pushed down before it plunged into the Java Sea, killing 189 people. The same software was implicated in the crash of Ethiopian Airlines 302 that killed 157 people on board that plane in March. That's it for news headlines this hour. I'm Max Pringle. Hard Knock Radio is next. Clever, and I want you to listen to what I listen to. Hard Knock Radio. Yo, this ain't your boy. This your brother, Ice Life. And this M1 International RBG all day, baby. On Hard Knock Radio. Word up. Check it out, y'all. Can I be the one to bring you joy? What's up, y'all? This is Lettucey with Hard Knock Radio. News, views, and hip-hop. Hi, man. It's Winston Bradley, a.k.a. Burning Spear on Hard Knock Radio. Jai's real. What's the right. deal? What's your latest hit, brother? Fear of a black planet. Man, don't you worry about things. black and white. Living in the land where the Lord says. Mixing a race makes the blood impure. Yeah. She's a woman. Black man, black woman. 
Davey D, Hard Knock Radio, hanging out with you this afternoon. We are still continuing our conversation about the rise of white supremacy, white nationalism, um, the movements that are connected to it, and people who are on the front line dealing with it. One of the groups that has been demonized, often in the media, but has been at war with the uh, with individuals and organizations that uh, push forth white supremacist ideology and white nationalism, uh, loosely defined as Antifa. And, uh, or, yeah, Antifa is the uh, word I'm looking for. And I wanted to talk to somebody who's very familiar. He actually does a show here on KPFA called It's Going Down. His name is Mike Andrews. And, Mike, uh, welcome to the show. And how are you doing these days? Good. Thanks so much for having me on and big fan of your show as well. Let's um, do Antifa 101. You know, there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, misinformation, in my opinion, that comes across uh, national media. Uh, people like to use the word black bloc or anarchist. And, uh, and when you start to have this conversation uh, around um, around those words, you often hear uh, um, adjectives like violent. Um, you have the mayor of Berkeley describe uh, Antifa as a gang. Uh, you have the FBI and 
far right wing people say you all are the or Antifa is the enemy and needs to be stopped at all costs. And it's the reason that we have uh, white supremacy. So let's clear, you know, let's clear up some of these myths and tell people what you know about this and what what we should fully understand. Well, first of all, just to start off, it's my understanding that the uh, mayor of Berkeley has gotten so many death threats from the far right that he's had to hire uh, bodyguards to keep him safe. And it's my understanding that uh, anti-fascists or organized anti-racist groups have, of course, made no certain threats against him. So I think it's very ironic that he's made a political play just like Trump and just like Ted Cruz to try to demonize people out on the streets fighting against the rise of violent far right groups uh, in order to, you know, gain votes. But, um... You know, at its core, anti-fascism and people organizing against far-right violence is simply the idea that the state is not going to protect us from auxiliary far-right groups that want to use violence. And I think in the United States, it's important to keep in mind that this violence has not always, like, been under the banner of fascism. You know, sometimes it's under the banner of settler colonialism or white supremacy or the Ku Klux Klan, groups that maybe necessarily don't identify, quote-unquote, under the European idea of fascism, but definitely are far-right, uh, reactionary, and want to protect and expand um, systems of domination in racial, gender, and class hierarchy. So I think in the United States, we can look back at, at groups that have resisted colonializ colonialization, have resisted white supremacy, have existed, uh, sorry, resisted groups like paramilitary, violent, far-right organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. And that's really, I think, in America where we see the roots of what we today is called Antifa. And I think it's also important to point out that the far-right really wants to create a narrative in which all social movements that are on the streets, that are engaged in community organizing, that are engaged in direct action, that are engaged in basically on-the-streets activity, they want to blanket them as quote-unquote Antifa. And this is really what they tried to do a couple years ago with the Black Lives Matter movement. This is just really a continuation of that. But really, anti-fascists, what they want to do is they want to get communities to be able to defend themselves against uh, the rising threat of far-right violence. And that means everything from community education to mass mobilizations like we've seen in Berkeley to just people to being able to organize events without the threat of somebody coming and disrupting it or attacking them or harassing them online and everything about that. So really it's about movement self-defense and about self-defense of everyday working class communities. There's a few things to uh, look at. Uh, one, let's look at the political arena and then we'll look at the community arena next. In the political arena, I've seen more anger and more um, upset from people who would be left-leaning. It's almost as if uh, Antifa gets a lot of bad press from the left, uh, mainstream left in particular. Um, the words that you often hear is that they're violent and they're discrediting our movements. Uh, they're the ones that are causing disruptions, and therefore we, we lose the moral high ground, we lose points because they're able to point and say, look, there's fires on the UC Berkeley campus, that's Antifa. They're fighting in the middle of the park in, in Berkeley, that's Antifa. And that, that, that means that there aren't political points able to be garnered 
um, is the is the is the wording used by folks who are in the mainstream on the left. How do you respond to that critique? Is it a valid one, or is this something amiss there? Well, first thing I would say is that recently uh, Richard Spencer, who was one of the main people that organized uh, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, he just did a, a live stream podcast that you can watch on YouTube. And one of the things that he was talking about with some of his friends, and we actually tweeted this out on the It's Going Down uh, Twitter account. Uh, this was put out a couple weeks ago. But he said um, that anti-fascists have literally driven the alt-right off the streets and that the anti-fascist movement is responsible for making a situation where not only the public is really against the far right and are willing to come out in mass numbers, but also just that they're unable to really organize outside of forums and stuff like that. And what we've seen after the El Paso shooting is that even more companies are being pushed to deplatform uh, websites like 4chan and like the Daily Stormer. They're being pushed even farther off the internet. So I think that if you're really concerned about the rise of far-right violence, you have to look at the movements that have really been effective, and what's been effective is the anti-fascist movement. And that means writ large. That doesn't just mean the small amounts of clashes that at times become violent. That means the mass action, the mass organizing activity that people have done. That means people publishing massive amounts of information, doing mass educational work, setting up events, you know, bringing people together to educate them. Because you have to remember that when the alt-right started, you know, around 2016, 2015, this was a very new thing. And especially for, I think, for older people that were kind of removed from, like, sort of these Internet subcultures or memes or sort of this where a lot of this stuff really developed or, like, gamer culture or something like that, um, you know, it was really hard for a lot of people to grasp kind of, like, where this stuff was coming from. And I think the anti-fascist movement really in a grassroots way was the vehicle that really got a lot of people to understand not only the threat of, of the far right, it's the amount of collusion that it has with law enforcement in the state, but also the need to really mobilize in a lot of different ways. And whether that means you, you know, go out to a street demonstration or you're involved in community organizing or you're calling into somebody's work to try to get them fired or you're flying or whatever, but just the need for people to mobilize. And also, I would say, too, that, you know, as we've seen with Unite the, after Unite the Right, we've seen mass amounts of people uh, going to the streets and really confront uh, these groups. And that continues to happen. I think um, the one of the misconceptions is that on the left, there's this, like, level of escalation of violence. And this is something that the right continues to push, that there's just more and more left-wing violence. But really what we've seen... Um, from the anti-fascist side is that the more people get involved the, after Charlottesville, the more people that just flooded the streets and like really just shut down these far-right rallies, really kind of the less amount that they actually organized to begin with. And I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing uh, individuals that are really frustrated on the far-right that are really starting to take these lone wolf actions, which are really scary, uh, because they're not, you know, they, they're you know, just disassociated individuals uh, without a movement. So I think the other point I would make is that, you know, this criticism from the left um, of anti-fascism, there was an article that came out in 2017 that looked at the um, opinion columns that were coming out. This was in FAIR of, uh, of editorials. And there were actually more editorials attacking anti-fascists that were written than editorials that were about the far right. 
So I think that really where a lot of this critique comes from is really from the center. It's not from the left, but I think the voices from the center scare a lot of people that are on the left. And really what the center wants to do is it wants to scare working people away from really creating social movements that are about defending and advancing their own, uh, you know, what they want and what they need in their own communities. And I think that that's really, you know, it's the main goal. It wants to basically either push people into the Democratic Party and just have them shut up and vote, but especially defang them and take away their ability to organize. And I think that's why they really want to demonize anti-fascism, because they see it as this kind of young, uh, militant thing that a lot of young people are excited about, and they, wanna, they want people to be scared of that. Let me ask you this, Mike. Um, as I started off in the show, I mentioned that there have been battles with anti-fascists and, you know, the far right in the form of neo-Nazis and now the alt-right and skinheads and all this for a very long time. First, how widespread is the white nationalist movement from your estimation? And where is Ground Zero? It used to be... You know, back in the 90s, I remember hearing all these stories about, you know, Ground Zero being in places like Portland and Washington State. And there's all these stories about these confrontations that have taken place, you know, in those cities and in those states. Uh, You know, and you could tell me how the outcomes have come. um, But where do you see that now? and, and, And what do people need to know about these movements as you all see it on the ground? Well, things have really changed. I mean, you know, you're talking about Portland in the late 80s where, um, you know, for instance, uh, Mula Gata Sarah was tragically, horrifically murdered by some white power skinheads. Um, And it took years of people organizing in Portland to really push those people off the streets. And obviously there's still some of those folks around. What we're seeing now is really a different kind of animal, you know, whereas the, the Nazi skinheads were kind of, you know, working class people that were somehow sucked into white reactionary racism and fascist movements really the alt-right is really kind of an upper middle class creation that really thrives on this idea of elitism it isn't interested in talking really to white working class people or at least most of them you know it isn't interested in having like sections of women involved it's really kind of a comes out of like gaming culture online culture it's it's a really different breed than like the traditional kind of like scary tattooed like white supremacy skinheads that we would see and i would say if there's anywhere that's really an epicenter i would say unfortunately it's places like washington dc i mean if we see people that like continuously like do stuff because there is a a lot of overlap with um you know people involved in the trump campaign people involved in the republican party i mean this is where these people are interested in putting their putting their energies into the the white power the white nationalist like alt-right movement right now is basically split there's one camp that wants to embed itself within the republican party they want to get involved in like local college republican organizations they want to get involved in groups like turning point usa or there's another group that says like look unite the right was a disaster it doesn't make any sense to go out and organize rally because the anti-fascists are going to out-organize us 10 to 1. We're all going to get our pictures taken. We're going to get fired. We should instead go underground and do uh, actions like we saw in El Paso. And that's really kind of where their movement is at. And there's a lot of people that obviously float between two camps. But those are basically the two you know, 
know, tactical tendencies within the alt-right and white nationalism. And to be honest with them, both are very scary because you have one that is that that is really much involved in gaining ground within established politics. Just to give you an example, for instance, so Chris Kobach, um, you know, a long-term player within GOP politics, he's really the person that's been the archetype behind, you know, voter ID, uh, stuff like that, and being able to kick massive amounts of people, especially people of color, off the voting rolls. Last year, it was discovered that staffers of his were involved in the group Identity Europa, which, of course, is one of the white nationalist groups. It's now rebranded as American Identity Movement, but uh, it was one of the white nationalist groups that marched in Charlottesville and, you know, was very keen in um, mobilizing for that demonstration. He had those people working for him. They were actually found out and they were fired. But it just shows you the degree in which there's a huge overlap. And, of course, there's been lots of other stories about alt-right people involved in college Republican or turning point circles. Um, but I mean, this continues. I mean, you have people like Steve King that like routinely share white nationalist talking points in social media through his Twitter account. I mean, Trump's the same thing. I mean, look at Tucker Carlson, the daily stormer, probably the most popular neo-Nazi website in the United States says that Tucker Carlson is their greatest ally because Fox news is just continuously amplifying their talking points. I mean, as most people probably listening to this understand like if you look at the manifesto that was published by the el paso shooter i mean there's points of that you could take out and attribute to people like laura ingram or tucker carlson and you wouldn't blink an eye because it's the same rhetoric that white people are being displaced there's an invasion white people are being genocided and of course they leave it open as to what somebody should do but the white nationalists of course have their own ideas about what people should do about that and that's violence the, you mentioned gaming culture. Talk a little bit about that. You know, it seems like in, you know, the shows that we've done over the past couple of days, you know, folks have talked about there's a, a, a sophistication um, that these uh, new movements, these far-right movements, these white nationalist movements have online. They have a strong presence online. They recruit online. How, how are you all seeing this, and what's the counter that you know, anti-fascists are doing, uh, because you all have been online as well. Well, there was there was a turning point in a lot of this stuff, and it goes back to 2015. There was a something, there was an incident called Gamergate in which uh, feminists and, and people that were involved in the gaming industry began to critique misogyny and sexism within video games. And there was a push both by trolls online to dox them, to release their public information level, you know, horrific threats. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but I mean, horrific threats against them. Some people had to, like, go offline, move and stuff like that. And websites like Breitbart really saw that as kind of like, you know, this, this is their jam. They kind of came to that, and that's where people like Milo Yiannopoulos, who would later write for Breitbart about the alt-right, you know, later Steve Bannon would refer to to Breitbart as a platform for the alt-right. That's really kind of like where that sort of like youthful, online, trolly, you know, young white male energy, you know, came from. And a lot of those people, like, were involved in posting on image boards like 4chan. A lot of people after the El Paso shooting have probably heard about 8chan, which is basically a more racist, more uh, neo-Nazi version of 4chan, people that left that board to do even more extreme stuff. But, I mean, it, there's a feeling, I think, online that there was a reaction to kind of like the Obama-era 
social justice, um, you know, internet discourse at the time. This is how they would describe it. And people, at least some people that would become the alt-right really gravitated toward this more reactionary, uh, racist, you know, trolly type of behavior online that really kind of like showed itself as a gaming gate. It's interesting, too, because a lot of these people originally started off as, like, describing themselves as, like, libertarians or something, people that supposedly wanted, like, limited government, but they wanted, you know, like, you know, free speech, but then they end up basically supporting a worldview that is totally antithetical to that and supports, you know, a, a huge authoritarian fascist state. But that's really kind of, like, where a lot of this stuff came from. And then today what we're seeing... In terms of the alt-right online is that you have a massive presence of podcasts. I mean, some of these podcasts are getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of listens. I mean, one of these people that makes some of these podcasts was just outed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as somebody that's working in the State Department. It looks like they're about to get fired based on the news today. But, I mean, this is kind of like where the the alt-right nowadays really exists, exists on. It's on social media. It's in memes. It's in some message boards. A lot of these things have been pushed off the Internet. They've been deplatformed. Like, some of these websites have been, like, literally kicked off. You cannot go on them unless you go on the dark web. But, I mean, through podcasts and a lot of that type of culture, that's kind of, like, where this online community uh, gathers. Mike Andrews is our guest this afternoon. You can catch him if you're in the Bay Area on It's Going Down. That's a show that he does on Fridays around 1 o'clock. Uh, Mike, you know, we talked about... 12 to 1, actually. 12 to 1, I'm sorry, I got the, got the times wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about what was going on in the late 80s and the 90s, and we talked about, you know, the skinhead movement, and there were disenfranchised uh, white youth. You know, oftentimes you would uh, surmise that they were reacting to economic challenges and economic hardships, and they needed a scapegoat. But this new movement, these tend to be middle-class, upper-class folks who in many ways are doing quite well. You know, they have money, they have resources. So what is motivating them? Is this an ideological thing? Is this just a pure hatred of black, brown, and others? Or what, what, where, where's, the, where's the hate coming from? What, what's motivating them? Well, again, I think it's important to look back and remember that the rise of the alt-right really started under Obama. And really it was kicked off with the Charleston massacre by Dylan Roof, an African-American church in South Carolina that left nine people dead. And really the reaction to that was really grassroots. People, just like after Charlottesville, they wanted Confederate symbols and statues taken down. And out of that reaction, uh, the alt-right really kind of... it as it became now kind of supplanted itself in that that kind of white reaction to people wanting confederate stuff taken down and really kind of found a home and then when trump came around really it found a way to insert itself but i think that at the core of it i mean it's it's really like how newt gingrich said you know trump is not a conservative but he's an anti-liberal and that's how fascism has always been. You know, it's hard to classify, but if it's anything, it's anti-left. It's against movements that are calling for the destruction of hierarchies and domination. And that's really kind of like where the core kind of like base is coming from. You know, it's, it's afraid of movements that are pushing for, you know, freedom, dignity, and autonomy. Black Lives Matter, 
um, you know, the fight for 15, you know, all of these movements that are that are pushing within society, really, that's where the impetus is coming from. And I think especially in 2015 and 2016, I mean, people, people on the right were looking at things like Ferguson, uh, the Ferguson Rebellion, and really uh, being afraid of black revolt, black freedom struggles, you know, just as it always been in the United States. And really, I think that was a huge impetus. And then when you had Trump come along, they kind of, in many ways, I, I liken it to them kind of finding their Occupy moment because they found a, a group of people that they could be around that would accept their ideology, that they could, you know, come outside and exist with, with, and also who were also consuming memes and podcasts and talking points that were similar to theirs. And then you fast forward to today, where Trump is really is literally having like social media summits with people that are two circles or one circle removed from people that organize Unite the Right. So it's a very you know scary situation. But really, that's where the impetus comes from: is that people that are scared of movements that are that are breaking down and challenging. Uh, hierarchies of race, class, and gender, and they're there to assert that they want those things not only affirmed, but they want them affirmed through a very, very authoritarian state structure that's based ultimately on massive amounts of violence. Well, that leads me to my other question, um, because obviously the anger and vitriol directed at black and brown folks has been around way before the Charleston massacre um, with Dylan Roof. And we saw that in the form of Fox and the rhetoric that they were constantly uplifting. Is this a 1% of very elite class that may have their um, hands hidden, so to speak, that is now, instead of manipulating uh, working class whites, says, you know, let's, let's kind of, you know, manipulate this other group of people. There's a little bit more sophistication. There's an opportunity for them to have a different type of skill set. So, in other words, is there a, a, a higher level that that is really trying to have a group of people essentially be a buffer? We're going to spend our time fighting the Breitbarts, but there's really some puppet masters that are above the Breitbarts, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, there are there are examples of people with massive amounts of money and massive amounts of power funding, not necessarily like alt-rights, you know, proper, like full-on white nationalist, neo-Nazi stuff. But if you look at Breitbart, I mean, Breitbart uh, was in flux with massive amounts of money from the Mercer family, which is a, a billionaire right-wing uh, family. They also gave massive amounts of money to people like Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, of course, was um, originally part of the Trump you know, the Trump presidency, he was kicked out after Charlottesville. He's gone on since then to campaign for people like Roy Moore. And then right now he's trying to build a coalition with far-right nationalists and in some cases like white nationalist parties in Europe with, you know, people in the United States. There's actually, <coughs> excuse me, there's actually a new documentary that just came out that you can watch on, I think it's Hulu or HBO or something like that, but it's about Steve Bannon and it covers his time from being outside of the White House to up until the 2018 mid midterms, it's, I mean, people need to watch it because it shows meetings in which there are Republican congressional officials sitting down with groups like the Swedish Democrats, which five years ago would have been just labeled neo-Nazi, and now they've tried to kind of polish their image and appear like the AFD in Germany, which is still considered, you know, the heir to the neo-Nazi, to the, sorry, the Nazi party in Germany. But I mean, that's what 
literally they're trying to build. I mean, there's other examples too. Like for instance, the Koch brothers have given lots and lots of money to the Daily Caller, basically keeping it afloat. The Daily Caller is Tucker Carlson's publication. Uh, the Daily Caller has actually fired multiple amounts of people that identify as white nationalists that have been uh, found out by groups like the PLC and uh, other people that have been linked to neo-Nazis like Richard Spencer, they've been kicked out of the Daily Caller, but they still um, employ and reprint, obviously, lots of white nationalists and alt-right stuff. So there are those examples. But yeah, I mean, white supremacy has always been as hard um, a cross-class relationship, trying to get you know, middle-class and working-class whites to align with those in power against those you know, peop- you know, groups of color and uh, black and brown and other workers. And I think that Trumpism at its core is really trying to affirm that as capitalism is really in crisis and we face all these onslaughts of everything from automation to uh, climate change. You know, right. Trumpism is really trying to come in there and offer a false solution. Mike Andrews, let me ask you this. You know, um, you talked about a lot of this being reactionary to um, black freedom struggles. And at the core of so many of the black freedom struggles, at least over the past decade or so, has been around police terrorism. The Black Lives Matter is essentially a reaction to out-of-control police. And, um, you know, and that is topic number one. How connected is this movement, these movements, with the police? And how does Antifa deal with that? How do you all negotiate that you know, how do you all confront that? Well, again, just to be clear, I'm part of a, a media project. I'm, I don't consider myself an organizer, an activist. I'm just somebody that does a lot of media stuff and writing about these movements. So I just want to make that clear. But in terms of the connection between the far right and the police, I think, I mean, you can you can definitely look at the recent slew of articles that have come out that have shown that, that large amounts of police officers, uh, high percentage are involved in far-right message boards and sharing memes and stuff on Facebook. There's been actually a slew of police officers, for instance, I believe in uh, Philadelphia that have been laid off because they've been found out to be sharing anti-Muslim or racist memes and being part of certain Facebook uh, groups. Also, this is something that's come out with the Border Patrol. Even the head of the Border Patrol was found out to be involved in these groups that were sharing racist stuff and making fun of you know, elected officials that were calling for change and everything like that. So, I mean, there, uh, there's definitely, like, an intrinsic kind of, like, solidarity within, uh, you know, who the police view as their enemy and who they view as, like, the, the elements within society that need to be repressed, and those line up very well with the far right. But there's other examples, like, for instance, you know, in Portland, I mean, if you, if you look at the relationship between the Portland police and um, groups like the Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer, there's been an ongoing controversy that's come out where the Portland police were seen to be, or they were, um, emailing back and forth with an individual named Joey Gibson, who's a far-right organizer uh, connected to the Proud Boys, and kind of the leader of a lot of these rallies that were happening in Portland. They basically had a, a sweetheart deal where, you know, they would email with Joey and they would coordinate and basically uh, figure out how they were going to facilitate the far the far rights rallies and they would even go so far as to give him information about what anti-fascist groups were doing they would be like hey just so you know uh tell so-and-so who's got like a warrant out for their arrest like don't you know be careful tomorrow we don't want them to get arrested and things like that 
So, I mean, this is kind of the way that, you know, the, the police have interacted with these groups is basically viewing them. I mean, the Portland police even put out a statement where they said, we see the far right groups as, quote, more mainstream than the anti-fascists. So, I mean, really, that's that's where we're at in the United States. And, I mean, if you, again, if you if you really want to look at this, you know, go on sites like Muckrock, where they're releasing FOIA documents where they show internal emails with the police. But, I mean, a lot of the police, when you look at kind of their internal communications, like, they are looking at sites like InfoWars. They are looking at far-right sites, and they're taking this stuff verbatim. Like, like for instance, uh, two years ago, Refused Fascism, which is, you know, a... A, a protest group around Trump that, you know, does, you know, more or less pretty standard left-wing kind of like rally march type events. They were going to have uh, protests on November 4th. And, you know, to be honest, they weren't necessarily very large, but InfoWars uh, kind of like piggybacking on stuff that had gone viral on social media put forth this idea that Antifa was going to engage in the Civil War and that they were going to kill all the white people and they were going to, like, you know, break into police officers' homes and cut off their heads. And if you look at some of the emails that were going through a lot of these fusion centers, and again, fusion centers are uh, basically uh, centers where police and uh, FBI are, inter- are interacting together and sharing information, they were taking this stuff as verbatim and they were viewing it as a tangible threat. So what comes out of this is that when police basically go to police these demonstrations, they're viewing people on the far right essentially as the group to protect, and people on the left are anti-fascist or Black Lives Matter groups. And this is actually concurrent with like what you see um, in, in the FOIA documents. In fact, there was one that came out specifically about the Bay Area that refers to like Black Lives Matter like as a hate group and so on and so forth. But I mean, they they view those organizations as the threat. And of course, anybody that's paying attention realizes that, you know, Black Lives Matter has not killed anybody. Anti-fascists have not killed anybody. White nationalists have. And also like, where does, where does the violence of these demonstrations really come? Anti-fascists are not just randomly attacking people on the streets, whereas much of the violence is coming from the far right, especially initially in these clashes and people are defending themselves from that. So of course, that's, that's not what you see in the law enforcement, how they how they interact with these situations. You mentioned Infowars, you know, sorry, you mentioned Infowars a couple of times, um, you know, headed up by Alex Jones. And I bring his name up very specifically because for a long time, um, he enjoyed the company of all sort of black folks. KRS-One, Professor Griff, Cynthia McKinney, Paris. <laughs> right. Minister Farrakhan, I mean, the list goes on and on of people who have shown up on his shows and have put out some of his stuff because, you know, at the time he put out the the documentary, the Obama deception, et cetera, et cetera. I remember talking to people blue in the face, having spent a lot of time in Texas, that that dude, in my opinion, from what I observed personally, was a racist. I watched him when he, when people were protesting detention centers, he was on the other side. You know, and there seemed to be a disconnect to understanding the fight that brown folks were having. So a lot of black folks continued to show up on his show. Where, how did, how did you guys see Alex Jones in InfoWars? Did he move from uh, one political ideology to another? Or has he always been consistent? And how has the, the anti-fascist movement 
seen him over the years? Well, we've actually talked a lot about this on our show. And in fact, some of the people, you know, when we were younger that have been involved in it's going down, like I had a, I had an InfoWars tape at one point. I think it was about 9-11. But I mean, I remember like, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, like, you know, like you were saying, like he was, Alex Jones was kind of seen as like definitely an out there guy. I mean, he was like famously in that uh, really great movie, actually, Scanner Darkly with Keanu Reeves. There's a scene with, with Alex Jones, like screaming, and then the government comes and like takes him away or something like that. But, I mean, he was, like you were saying, I mean, uh, people didn't view him as kind of this racist, xenophobic, nativist uh, kind of person back then. I think what happened was... Well, well let's, let's be very clear, let's, not to cut you off. A lot of Latinos sure. did, in Texas especially, and they were raising that alarm. I've been down there, and people just ignored sure. it. And in that, in that, that's what I said. There was this disconnect because it's like, hey, man, this dude is talking about... All the anti-immigrant stuff that we're hearing now, he was talking about back then. And that was, you know, folks is like, well, that's not my problem. And they were hanging with him. But now, you know, it's kind of, in my my opinion, it's kind of clear where he's coming from. But, how, you know, get, right. I didn't want to cut you off, but as you were saying. <laughs> well, no, I was just going to say, but that was always his thing, is that he was always, at the end of the day, he was always very anti-immigrant. That was kind of like the one thing that kind of, like, stopped him from, you know, really... I don't know. I mean, people are always like, yeah, but Alex Jones is, like, totally anti-immigrant and, like, you know, on this whole borders tip and stuff like that. But I think, like, after Obama came into office, like, he really, he not only swung to the right, but I think that he, like a lot of people on the right, kind of began this uh, kind of uh, dialogue where it was like, well, the, the real racism is against white people. You know, that's where the real racism is. And I think you see this time and time and again in the right. Like, people... Like, if you're on social media and you get, like, you know, far-right trolls, like, you see the same thing over and over again. It's like, well, the real fascism is the anti-fascist. Well, the real racism is against white people. You know, which, you know, again, like, it doesn't hold up. Like, there's no factual basis for it. Like, and this is, like, something that's really intrinsical, I think, to Trumpism. And especially if you look at something like the growth of QAnon, which is kind of akin to, like, a lot of these conspiracy theories that come out of InfoWars, is it's really about a faith. You know, it's a faith based based in Trump. You know, it's 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 like how we saw the, when they first started to kind of, like, uh, spin this thing about alternative facts. It's like, well, it's an alternative fact. It's just, it's just you know, a feeling I have. And really, Trumpism has really, like, solidified that into a faith where now even people in QAnon view Trump as, like, this, you know, like, messiah-like figure that's going to fix everything. And even when he does bad, it's really good. And that Trump is just going to make it all better. I mean, it's 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 really, really scary. Um, but, yeah, I mean, InfoWars really shows the way in which kind of that racialized element has just, like, become kind of like the core of the far right and like they are now like they will have white nationalists on their program especially now that they've been like kicked off of uh certain platforms and stuff and they're kind of more free to do what they want i mean before they were kind of like wanting to kind of keep that stuff at arm's distance or like he would have like david duke on to like debate him um now they're having groups like identity Europa on and like have them talk about what they're doing and like explain their positions and stuff like that and really their core principles um, really are not that far. I think what people need to keep in mind is that really the, the split in the right right now is between paleoconservatives, and this is like kind of where I would put the Proud Boys in, like they're, the person that founded them, Gavin McInnes, said, 
What I want to do is shut the borders down and make people acclimate to white culture, white society, and and um, systems of power and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's the paleoconservative uh, goal. It's to basically preserve white supremacy structurally within the confines of America. And then the people on the alt-right, the revolutionaries, they think that that's hopeless. They want to overthrow the state and create a white ethno-fascist state. And there's a disagreement in that camp between do we kick everybody that's not white, not a straight white fascist out, or do we just carve up a piece of the United States and live there? Wow. Um, but, I mean, that's that's really the distinction is between people that could be considered paleoconservatives, and that's something that uh, Alex Jones has aligned with, and then people that are more on a revolutionary tip that want to overthrow the state or want it to crumble or fall apart. And what's really scary is that if you look at a lot of the the rhetoric on the far right, I mean, they view Trump as, as their last stand within American politics. And they're like, if, if, Trump, if Trumpism fails, which many of them says it is, because it's really just kind of like a weird racist authoritarian version of neoliberalism like if trumpism fails you know our only help left is to go into a more revolutionary armed struggle mode which in some ways we're seeing that so i mean that's that's scary as we close out uh, mike andrews is who our guest has been this afternoon talking about antifa anti-fascist movements the rise of white nationalism um, I'm going to give you two questions as you close out. One, um, the perception is the anti-fascist movement is all uh, white. Um, that's not been my experience from running into folks, but if you can break down how you've seen this. And two, uh, what do you think the next steps are for people to take? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it's all white. I would say it's 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 reflective of basically autonomous social movements that are on the streets, left movements, um, you know, which unfortunately skews largely white. I mean, obviously, um, in some in some areas, in some areas, it's not. Um, I think that obviously we want all movements to be reflective of, you know, the wider populations of, of poor people and working class people that we would ultimately like to, you know, build up these movements to, to really change society. And, you know, we want them to be more reflective of the population that actually exists. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's all different kinds of people that are involved in it. And, I mean, I would encourage people to, I mean, remember the risks that people are taking when they go out there. I mean, these are not necessarily people that are, you know, like in prison doing push-ups, you know, fighting each other all the time like some of these folks that they're going up against. I mean, these are just everyday people that have jobs, have kids, you know, go to school, that are going out there and putting themselves on the line. So maybe the rest of us don't have to worry about some of this stuff walking home at night. And I think that's very commendable. And I think that it's easy for us to look back at past movements that at times have been confrontational or that times have used self-defense and being like, oh, yeah, I support that. But when we're in the middle of it, it's a lot it's a lot harder for us, especially with the mainstream media, which is which is always going to demonize working class struggles. You know, no matter where they are, whether it's teachers doing wildcat strikes in West Virginia, whether it's anti-fascists in Berkeley fighting against the far right, they're always going to demonize them. The media is not going to stand up and applaud working class people taking self-action and direct action. Like, it's just not. I mean, that's that's why, you know, institutions like KPFA exist to tell our own stories and to prevent our own narratives and talk about our own movements. 
So, I mean, people need to stop getting so caught up in the fact that the media is demonizing it or the politicians are. Like, that's what they're designed to do. They're supposed to do that. You know, they're designed to demonize working class people taking control of their own lives. Um, but your other question was the next steps. I mean, I think people just need to really continue what they're doing. Unfortunately, after all of these, after each one of these tragedies, I mean, People come into movements because things happen. There's a crisis. They get involved. Um, people need to realize that there's lots of different ways to get involved with organizing against the far right. Like, so, for instance, in Portland, there's a group called Pop Mob, which is short for Popular Mobilization. They do mass kind of like, uh, you know, protests, or they'll put on uh, kind of more fun, like family-based activities that allows people to kind of come out to big demonstrations and not only be safe, but also like be in a space that they can engage in because, you know, they can't necessarily be on the front lines or they can't be facing off against white nationalists. I mean, you can also do research. I mean, as as most people that are active in the, in the anti-fascist movement will tell you, like 95% of what anti-fascists do is just total, total nerd stuff. It's just being on the internet, researching these people, looking at their social media, seeing what they do, and then reporting it back to the wider society. I mean, that's literally most of what anti-fascists do. And then the other 5% is putting on demonstrations during, during the few times in which these people actually decide to go out in the streets and pushing back against them. And also most anti-fascists are involved in a wide range of other struggles and other organizations and, and other things in their communities. I mean, people are not just solely just about, you know, fighting fascists, you know, fist to fist. I mean, that's that's a, a facade and a trope that's been, you know, pushed forward by the right and the center. So we've really got to, you know, get past all this stuff and realize that people from all walks of life, all different colors from wherever you are, are engaging in anti-fascism because, you know, we need to not only protect our communities, but also we need to protect our movements. You know, what we're seeing again and again is that neo-Nazis, militias, far-right groups, they're showing up to places where the left is. Like we just saw in Detroit, the Proud Boys came out to a Green New Deal event and were rallying outside. Just yesterday, as It's Going Down reported, there was a Trump supporter with a gun that came outside of an immigrant community center in El Paso, Texas. He was stopped by the police and let go. But, I mean, there's still that, that tangible threat. I mean, they're not just holding rallies to, like, get their ideas out there. They're coming to where we are. There's been multiple anarchist book fairs where the far right has shown up and been outside and tried to attack people. There's been many instances where a lot of these far right groups will go to, like, you know, white supremacy workshops or protest trainings and stuff like that. And they even write online that they say that they're going after liberals and what they call soft targets. So just because you think that, you know, because of whatever you believe in nonviolence or you believe that you have the right strategy, it doesn't mean they're going to not show up at your event. And when they do, you have to ask yourself, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to protect the people that are with you and make sure that they're safe? Or are you just going to hope that, you know, the bad people outside are just going to leave you alone eventually? And I think that that's really what anti-fascism tries to ask or to answer is that not only what are we going to do about wider society, but how are we going to protect social movements from attack by the far right? Mike Andrews, we appreciate you taking time out this afternoon on Hard Knock Radio. 
Um, again, uh, we appreciate the insight. Let everybody know, um, especially if they're here in the Bay Area, um, when they can hear your show. Sure, it's going down. You can hear us um, Saturday, or sorry, Fridays from uh, 12 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, you know, we're streaming. Uh, you can hear us, and you can also go to itsgoingdown.org. We put out a couple podcasts a week where you can hear us there. And, of course, on KPFA, and we're also rebroadcast in Fresno and in Santa Cruz as well. There you have it. A lot to think about. We appreciate this. We're going to take a break on Hard Knock Radio. We'll be right back. Coming up on the hour of 8 p.m. and you are tuned to KBOO Portland. Stay tuned after these announcements for a different nature. Pull me over on the boulevard. 